those who want to have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights denied have to be looked at through the lens of who are they. Are they the people with privilege? You have to look at the value set of the people who argue that. Hi there, and welcome to Voices from the Institute for Human Rights and Business, also known as IHRB. I am Deborah Sager, and in this podcast, you will hear from people working to make respects for human rights part of everyday business. You've just heard from Sharon Burrow, who's a global advocate for human and labour rights. Sharon is the former General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, ITAC. She is well known for international advocacy on labour standards, corporate responsibility, the rights of women, equality, diversity, and so much more. Sharon recently spoke to my colleague John Morrison, the Chief Executive of IHRB, to discuss the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In this episode, you're going to hear about its history, its legacy, and the future of the UDHR. Let's hear the conversation now. We're approaching the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration for Human Rights. The world is fragmenting, many challenges, conflicts around the globe. So it's not a happy time, but it's an important time to remember the words that were put on paper on the 10th of December 1948 by Eleanor Roosevelt and everybody else. Now, of course, when Eleanor Roosevelt spoke about the Universal Declaration, she often used the phrase, in all the small places, by which she meant the factory, the farm and the office. Now, you might not think they're small places, but but she really had this vision that human rights would only be real in people's lives if people experienced them and that workplace rights were really central and the workplace itself was central. Now, Sharon, as a trade unionist, as one of the world's leading trade unionists who has done a lot for women and migrant workers and and other groups, what does the UDHR mean to you and how do you use it in your work? The Declaration means everything, John. First of all, it is the heart and soul of the United Nations and a commitment by the governments of today and Sadly, I can't say all of the governments of today, but many of them. Certainly, it was a commitment 75 years ago by those governments who were incredibly visionary and committed to, if you like, the moral heart of a world that they wanted to preserve. Today, of course, it remains as critical as ever, but we are seeing very serious cracks and have been for some time in the respect for human rights. So absolutely fundamental. Of course, it's also that workers' rights are human rights. Indeed, freedom of association is one of the key plates of the Universal Declaration. That, of course, plays in to back in all of the other rights that you will find through the International Labour Organization and the foundations of universal workplace laws in many, many countries. Very much. And given that a lot of the labour rights that you have worked on come through the International Labour Organization, which was part of the League of Nations, so some of those conventions go back to the 1930s, particularly, is it a happy coexistence to see those standards within this broader context of human rights, of civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights? I think it's vital, John, that 
workers' rights are at the centre of a whole range of civil and political rights. Certainly in terms of economic ambition, economic outcomes, then if you don't have workers' rights, then there is no protection against unmitigated exploitation. So the ILO's first convention, of course, was an attempt to civilise working time. It's ironic in many ways, I'm sure you appreciate, John, that having used union organisation, workers organising all around the world for the eight-hour day, and I'm proud to say that one of the first strikes in that outcome was right here in the city I'm in today, Melbourne. So it has our heart. But as we now look at the future of work, we know that working time, that fundamental tenet should remain. And indeed, perhaps we need to work less. But it is not necessary that we will work eight hours, have eight hours rest, and indeed eight hours leisure. So some of these things have to be protected and amended at the same time. And that's why the ILO is so fundamental, because it is indeed a partnership with business, workers through their unions, and indeed governments to lay the global foundations of law for workers everywhere. And if you're a woman sitting in a workplace somewhere in the world at the moment, and maybe it's unregulated or you, you don't have the rights or, or, the, or the contractual securities or social protections that you should have, what does the UDHR mean to her? And I'm struck by, you know, if you go back to pictures of the 1950s and 60s in the civil rights movement, people used to carry the UN flag. Some actually carried the Universal Declaration of Human Rights on Martin Luther King marches, right? Does it still have that same currency for women workers in a factory or a farm around the world today? I think the notion of rights certainly do. And for organised trade unionists, then the international rule of law through the ILO and its fundamental conventions, Convention 87, the right to freedom of association and to organise, and of course, Convention 98, that's fundamental. For women everywhere, for migrants, for workers who are exploited because of difference, then also if you look at the fundamental or the decent work declaration of the ILO, the fundamental rights and standards we know them as, then it is in fact Convention 97, the right to organise, the right to collectively bargain, the right to strike indeed, and of course uh, that's all based on freedom of association, but it's also the right to be free of discrimination. For women, that's still as current today, it's still as serious a struggle today as it's ever been. For migrant workers, for many other workers, where their ethnicity, their sexual orientation or other areas of difference prevail and for which they are discriminated. But it's also a protection against forced and child labour. So when you translate those fundamental rights, now including occupational health and safety of the ILO and link it back to the core rights of the UN Declaration, then you have in fact an enduring legacy underpinning struggle. Now yes, you're right, it could be more vocal, but I know that when the ILO made the decision just two weeks ago to actually go to the ICJ to try and settle the tensions around the right to strike, then again, that's an historic link 
with a set of rights that were framed all those years ago, John. I would say that in the case of women, you know, our global economy has been sadly founded on exploitation. Our supply chains are exploitative. There is no doubt that we can generate wealth. If you just take GDP as a measure of wealth, you and I know that's inadequate, but nevertheless, it's the dollar base of how much wealth the world's generates multiplied. You know, in the last 40 years, six, seven times, sometimes more, depending on the nation. But of course, it hasn't been shared. And that's why without those rights for collective bargaining to be indeed able to challenge discrimination, then our workers would be worse off. Do you think trade unions get forgotten, though, sometimes when people look at the UDHR and issues like collective bargaining? And, you know, I hear the arguments that, well, you can have collective bargaining without trade unions. We can have worker councils. And I'll talk, we'll talk about Qatar in a minute. But, I mean, is there a danger that somehow people go straight to the UDHR and say, you can work around the need to have trade unions in the workplace? by looking at the UDHR without the ILO conventions in mind, right? I think the uh, appropriate definitional explanation is people would like there not to be unions. If you're uh, (laughs) an employer or indeed a government who's not uh, very progressive and, you know, trade unionism can be messy. Politics, democracy, it's messy. So when people are fighting for their rights, it's not clean and nice all the time, but the settlements are brilliant. If you look at it from the point of imbalance of power, John, then it's mostly those with the power who will say, oh, well, trade unions are now part of history. It's not the underprivileged or the people who take heart from collective struggle who will tell you that. But I do think trade union leaders, certainly I know, we've had to fight, you know, over many decades for our space around the issues and for settlement through bargaining or legislation or through the regulation of government. I will say to you that today, if you want to look at the relevance of trade unions, think about the climate transition and our fight for just transition. The automotive workers dispute in the US has shown you how unions cannot just bargain for wages and conditions. Of course, that's really important. But they also bargain for the nature of the transition to actually take combustion engines as we mitigate uh, climate to electric engines and what that means for the security of jobs and the protection of workers. The same with the SAG-AFTRA or the screenwriters and actors dispute where AI allows us simply to use someone's image or they can appear once and we can manipulate the image with AI or to use people's words and build other scripts from the basis of the screenwriter's labour. They actually fought and won huge protections that now need to be backed up, in that case, by regulation or legislation to protect people everywhere. So unions are as important today as they've ever been, but yes, the struggle for recognition in many, many parts of the world continues. There's an inherent pragmatism with unionism, right? I mean, you're about, to, at the end of the day, you're about doing a deal, right? Get, getting the best you can. And let's take Qatar as an example. I mean, I, I've followed your work closely, as you know. We've done some work together in Qatar. And you sort of went on a journey, I suppose, or maybe the Qataris went on a journey with you from being a, a, a country which treated migrant workers in slave-like conditions, I think, to use your own language, 
to a country that you've actually, I would say, have been quite positive about and, and rewarding about in your language, yet at a time with the, with the World Cup last year where rainbow flags were being confiscated for fans going in the grounds and things, the UDHR brings a kind of intersectionality of rights, economic, social, cultural rights, civil and political it doesn't allow you to say labour rights in isolation from other things. So do you believe in the UDHR in the context of Qatar and migrant workers or, or haven't you taken a much more segmented approach to that issue? Well, I certainly believe in UDHR and we fought right alongside you, John, and many business leaders who had the courage, if you like, with the UN leaders, our dear friend Mary Robinson, to fight for business and human rights. So yes, there's an intersectionality. But I think if you ask what's the mandate of trade unions, then indeed it is to fight for the rights of workers. Qatar is uh, not a democracy. It won't be a democracy in our lifetime. But if you want to look at that through the lens of democratic rights across the board, then Freedom House says less than 20% of our people live in truly free countries. So we have an uphill struggle. So when we took on the battle with Qatar, it was, uh, I indeed described it as modern slavery because that's what it was. You know, if you're effectively owned, your whole world is dependent on one other individual, in this case, the employer for your permit, your visa, your entry, your accommodation, your conditions, your very wages, which could be paid or not paid, the nature of the contract, whether it was honoured or torn up and replaced by other conditions, that's slavery. That's slavery. So what we set out to do was fight that. And there's no doubt that for the first five years of that campaign, the Qatari government didn't want to talk to us. Actually, I think I would have been enemy number one of the state in many ways. And we experienced a whole lot of, you know, interesting fight back measures, including cyber attacks and a lot of PR and, you know, propaganda about who we were or what we were about. But Again, the ILO comes into play because when we lodged a complaint with the ILO about workers' rights, those fundamental rights and conditions laid down under the Decent Work Declaration of the ILO, then the Qataris had to make a decision. Did they continue to fight or did they actually sit down and negotiate? Now, to their credit, they negotiated. I'm not going to pretend it was easy or perfect but indeed, the conditions we had set out and agreed to negotiate around were met. No question about that. Did we achieve the fundamental basis of freedom of association? Not yet. But in place is, in fact, a series of joint committees which give workers the right to elect their own representatives and to negotiate in their workplace. That's a solid foundation that now can be built on. But I've said all along, Getting the rights is one thing, John. Getting respect for implementation is a whole other thing. And we can see that not just in Qatar, but in every country, in every one of our countries. Otherwise, we wouldn't have labour courts or disputes or disagreements generally around wages and conditions. Let's go on to the just transition. You've mentioned that, Sharon, already. It's a concept that comes from the trade union movement around the uh, protecting workers in the transition to the low-carbon economy. There are many tensions around the work. There's a tension amongst environmentalists that we're trying to introduce a lot of social complexity to, to net zero. But there's also, I would say, a tension sometimes between trade unionists and others in the human rights 
field. Trade unionists sometimes might feel that workers get forgotten or workers are not as central as they should be when we bring in the voices of indigenous communities, other communities, or even consumers in relation to the energy transition, etc. What do you think about that? Are they right to be protective? Is just transition a concept that should always primarily be about workers and worker rights? Or is there space for others in that? So when you look at the history, John, and uh, certainly it was more than a 15-year campaign, throughout of the manufacturing um, workers' experience, industrial workers' experience, that many transitions had happened, new technologies, shifting resources, government shifts and the attitude to manufacturing or industrialization, that many of those transitions were simply unfair. But it was more than a 15-year struggle and it was a concept to bring union members, working people behind the understanding that this was the most existential threat to our humanity, but of course to democracies as well, both inside the workforce and out of it, to protect jobs. Having won it in 2015, I might add with the support of all of those communities, the NGOs, including the aid groups, the uh, rights groups, the green you know, or environmental advocates and progressive business, then that was a major framing. But we also won human rights. That same group of people fought and won human rights in the introduction to the Paris Climate Agreement. So will unions have to fight for just transition? Yes. But if you look at our language, John, it always says workers and communities. And I think it's magnificent, and I applaud your work and others, that people are now using it to describe, if you like, the exploitation or the invisibility of communities affected by both climate and industrial transitions. So for me personally, I don't feel any sense that we have to demarket. What I would say to you, though, is unions still have to fight for the concept of just transition because many people now want to use it as a small lens of tokenism rather than a deep engagement of both consultation and co-planning of endorsement of transparency plans and of the finance, pricing in consultative mechanisms with workers and communities and the measures that are agreed in outcome. And I'll give you just one example on this. If there is a tension, then I just have to say to you transmission lines, because if we don't consult with workers and communities, then those transmission lines are so vital, and yes, they can be ugly, but so vital to actually distribute renewable energy to the extent that it's absolutely got to be driven up at scale, then we will fail, and we're seeing that everywhere. There are many other examples of that in terms of permitting, of place-based development. People must be involved. They must understand the choices and we must have workers and community support if we're going to get to the scale and the ambition we need to actually stabilise the climate. We'll be reminding ourselves of the 10th of December 1948. And of course, the world then moved into the Cold War. So thinking about when did the UDHR become hard law? more international law. The world couldn't agree in the 20 years following the signing of the UDHR. That's why we have the two covenants on civil and political and economic, social and cultural rights that were signed in 1966. Now, it feels like the world is fragmenting again. And so for the 10th of December this year, and, you know, 
this morning we woke up to the news here that they haven't even stopped the fighting in Gaza, you know, between uh, Gaza and Israel. Uh, we were hoping for that this morning, that maybe will come tomorrow. Conflicts in Ukraine, etc. How pessimistic or optimistic are you that the UDHR, which often, you know, we hear human rights is an imposition, that's not relevant to my culture, it's not relevant to my generation, this is a bunch of you know, a bit of a post-war consensus and needs, needs to be rewritten or it needs to be discarded. Hear that a lot. Will we still have a UDHR in 75 years? So, John, I think, first of all, those who actually want to have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights denied have to be looked at through the lens of who are they. Are they the people with privilege? Do they want to protect that privilege? Do they want to share it with others? Really, you have to look at the value set of the people who argue that. For people who are oppressed, who are fighting and have to fight with vigilance to protect fundamental rights, then this is a foundation that must be there in 75 years. But can I say to you, as the world fragments, it becomes even more important. If you're going to have to again fight for peace, for democracy, for fundamental human rights, everywhere as the fabric of societies where people are both free, where there's laws that respect them and their rights, then this is again a flagship that everybody has to fight for. If Eleanor Roosevelt was still with us and if she was making a speech again next month and she was to talk about the small places of today and tomorrow, which are the spaces and places that you would shine a light on, Sharon, for us to pay particular attention to in the years to come? Well, you know, I would have to say women. Women are indeed going backwards by every indicator on fundamental rights and equality. So shocking as it is, that's got to be the first tenet that, you know, there are men and women and, of course, a whole rainbow community out there who just serve to hold up the sky equally. Migrant workers are still very often at the bottom of the consideration for their fundamental rights around a huge range of issues in work, of course, that exploitation can be obvious, but also in political and civil rights. And we see that now with refugees as countries become hard-hearted and shut their borders and the right to stay or the, the kind of threat of being deported. Here in my own country, that's prevalent. Everywhere it's prevalent. But I also think Indigenous communities, John, I think that we failed to understand that our Indigenous communities around the world, and certainly the Indigenous Australians here, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, they're not just old living cultures. In fact, we have the oldest living culture right here in Australia, yet it's not well known. They're not just places you go like Machapushu or Easter Island or Ephesus or many other ancient areas to look at ruins and think about, you know, those old cultures. They are people with ways of knowing and doing that we need more now than ever as we face an embattled world from climate, from the fact that we've traversed six of the nine planetary boundaries, we need to learn and walk alongside our Indigenous people and in the doing of that, respect their rights. And they bring an intergenerational perspective that perhaps we've lost in many of our cultures. Sharon, great talking to you. Really good to have you on our International Advisory Council and, and uh, working with you on many of these issues. It's a complete privilege. 
I know you have a busy diary coming up with COP28 and Davos in January, etc. So hopefully be seeing you in a number of places. Um, but thank you for your work, your passion, your strength. And um, I won't say that you're the Eleanor Roosevelt of today, but no, uh, no, certainly, certainly channel, uh, <laughs> I think, a lot of the energy that she did and reminding us of the small places that we can easily overlook. So thank you very much. But John, thank you for your work and that of your colleagues because you keep the light alive. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Voices, which is brought to you from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Until next time, be sure to share and follow this podcast that way you'll never miss an episode. If you would like to find out more about the work that we do at IHRB, then head to ihrb.org.